Well, good morning. I, I need to say as we get started here in the message that I love the sounds of the Lord's people together. Uh, the variety of sounds here today, there was singing, which was just filling the room. Uh, there's prayer. Uh, there's conversation and fellowship. Uh, there are little children making all kinds of little children's sounds. These are all good. And they are beautiful and they are wonderful. They are part of what it means and what is involved and why the Lord called us to gathering together as often as is possible. We need this, don't we? Uh, we need each other and we need the sounds of the Lord's people. And even the sound of silence as we paused in preparation for the communion meal and for those moments, it was just quietness in the room. Beautiful and wonderful and affecting. God is good. God is good. And now we hear the sound of God's Word. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 3. We here at uh, Risen Hope uh, believe without any blushing or without any embarrassment whatsoever that the Bible is the Word of God, that it is inspired literally by God, and therefore it is without any error and it is infallible and unfailing in everything that it says, and that it is authoritative in our lives, that to hear God's Word is to hear the voice of God. It is as if God is speaking to us right from heaven here today. As we read the Word, this is, as the old prophets used to say, a thus says the Lord. This is the Lord speaking to us. And so we read the words of God to our hearts beginning in verse 9 of Colossians chapter 3. This is what the Lord says. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Let's pray. This is your word, O living God. Give us ears to hear it and joy in receiving it. Pour out your grace on us, dear Father. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, this, this really is, for those of you that are new and are visiting, uh, we have been preaching through the book of Colossians, started right in chapter 1 in verse 1, and we're working our way through it and enjoying just a verse-by-verse 
explanation and application of God's Word to our lives. And this particular message is really part two of one that we started last week in this text. You may remember, if you were here last week, that I talked about the fact that this text offers us five identity markers and then five action items. Five identity markers and then five action items. The five identity markers, according to this text, are these. We are, if we have trusted in Jesus as our Savior, we are new creations. We are absolute equals. We are chosen possessions. We are consecrated servants. And we are beloved children. This, this is our identity as those who follow Jesus. We are new we are equal, we are chosen, we are consecrated, and we are beloved. That's your identity, child of God. Hear it and say it with me. We are new. We are equal. We are chosen. We are consecrated. And we are beloved. If you struggled each day to discern who you are and whose you are, and what it means to be you, remember this, you are new, you are equal, you are chosen, you are consecrated, and you are loved. This is what happens when, in fact, we trust in Jesus as our Savior. One of the greatest needs that our generation has, if indeed it is going to address the crises of faith and the crises of relationships that are going on in the church today, it is for us as believers to know who we are in Christ. Our main self-identity and self-awareness cannot be uh, the car we drive or the clothes that we wear or the color of our skin or the condition of our bodies or the culture that we are used to or the class that we are a part of. These things cannot be our identity. It must be in Jesus Christ alone, new and equal and chosen and consecrated and loved. That I am a new creation in Christ gives me hope for my future. That I am equal with all others who are in Christ gives me dignity and humility. That I am chosen gives me security. That I am consecrated gives me purpose. That I am loved gives me joy. Those are the five identity markers in this text. The five action items flowing out of that. Put on or clothe yourselves with compassionate hearts. Clothe yourself with kindness. Put on humility. Put on meekness. Put on patience. Paul writes. And then to those five action items, Paul adds a few words in verse 13. 
having told us to put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Verse 13 actually connects, I think, to all of these action items, but there may be a special connection to the fifth action item, that of putting on patience. So today I want us to to think a bit about patience, looking at it from three or four different angles. Let's, Let's just begin with a definition of patience. What is this patience that Paul is talking about here. The Greek word refers to long-suffering. It it speaks to suffering for a long time with endurance under duress. Under duress in life and circumstances and under duress in relationships. This is not just patience as we, as we think about it in terms of, well, I guess I can wait for such and such a, to happen. No, this is enduring patience. This is, this is suffering long in life. This is refusing to quit. This is putting up with a lot of stuff with endurance. That's the definition of it. Now, what's the context for it? There's, there's two things in this, this context for patience that indicate that this is real world here. Paul is not living in an ivory tower. Paul is not speaking out of some uh, abstract or distant place. He's, no, he's talking in the real world. Uh, and there's two ways to see that in the text. First of all, by noticing the, if you, call, you might call it the membership list uh, in the Colossian church. Look back at verse 11. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul says here, that is in the church, in the Colossian church, there, is not the, there are not these people groups, but the reality is that they were there. So how are they not there and there? It wasn't as if these folks suddenly stop being Greek or Jewish or barbarian or Scythian or any of these others. No, they were these, but these weren't there. How's that? Well, what it means is that these things were not true of people in terms of status and favor and acceptance with God. Christ is all and in all. And there is nothing separating us by way of value or worth or merit. And yet, though we are all one, and though Christ is in us all and is all, the reality is we are different. We are diverse. So that when Paul says to us to walk together, putting on, clothing ourselves with with grace and forbearance and patience. He is speaking into the real world. It's as if he was here in Risen Hope Church in Prospect Park and looking out and saying, okay, I see diversity here. I see all different kinds of people, all different ages and classes and conditions and colors and cultures. And God is saying to us, these things don't really exist here because we're all one in Christ. But then on the other hand, they do exist, don't they? Uh, 
And that's where the challenge is, isn't it? Paul is in, in an ivory tower. Paul's, you know, if you will, he's looking at us right now. I say, okay, this is hard. It is the diversity. It is it are the, the differences that make it challenging to be patient. It's not easy. I mean, I look at the list that Paul gives here, Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free. And these people could not have been more different than they were. And I know Alex, in a great message from a couple of weeks ago, went through and defined all these. But just a quick review. The the Greeks were really, really, really well-educated, and they knew it. The, The Jews were the chosen people of God, and so... They tended to have a high view of themselves. The circumcised and uncircumcised, there were some who had gone through all the religious rituals and all the rest. The barbarians that were kind of out there as we think of barbarians, uneducated and uncouth. The Scythians were really, really a messed up group of people. They were violent and they were party mongers. And and, uh, some of the research says that they were, uh, how do I put this? They were potheads. They were given to the use of marijuana, of pot, and they were partiers and drug abusers and addicts, and uh, they would have been the people that many people would have looked on as as the dregs of society, then slave and free. And Paul says, you're all one, and you're all equal but you're all different. Now, be patient with each other. Be long-suffering with each other. And then Paul goes on and says, not just identifying our differences, in verse 13 there's a little phrase that just hints at the reality. If anyone has a complaint against anyone, Anybody here have a complaint against anyone? Is it, you know, have you ever felt like you've been wronged? Or has your church experience been just wonderfully blissful? Do you look around and say, no, nobody here has ever done me wrong? Now, all you have to do is look up here, who's standing here, and realize that somebody has done you wrong. I am far from a perfect man, and I would hate to know how many times I have offended, and I have grieved, and I have hurt the people that I love. It's just, it, it's real, isn't it? We, we wrong and are wronged. We have complaints against each other, accusations against each other. And Paul says to us that with all this diversity and with all of these complaints and wrongs, we are to walk in patience with each other. And then he he expands it to the commitments of patience. I want you to look at this again in verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, 
as the Lord is forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Paul calls us to patience, and then he proceeds to two participles, two active particles. Here's, here's how you act out that patience. Be patient with each other, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other. So here are these two commitments that biblical patience must make. We must be bearing with one another. The word speaks of putting up with, in the everydayness of life and relationships, putting up with the quirks and the foibles and the weaknesses and the stumbles and the mistakes of other people. Putting up with each other. Not quitting on each other. Just bearing up under the things that people may do or say or not do or not say. Just love covers a multitude of sins. There's forbearance that we are to show to each other. This form of patience refuses to give up. It refuses to give up. And then Paul speaks of forgiving each other. We are to be bearing with each other, and we are to be forgiving each other. If forbearance refuses to give up, forgiveness refuses to get even. If forbearance refuses to give up, forgiveness refuses to get even. Forgiveness happens when we say to each other, I am not going to hold your sin against you. Forgiveness happens. We've sung about it, right? Uh, we have forgiveness in Christ through the blood of Christ. We are forgiven. God has, in chapter 2 and verse 13, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. He has forgiven us all our trespasses. How? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. How does God forgive us? By canceling our debt. And how has he canceled our debt? By nailing it to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has taken your sin and your guilt and the punishment you deserve and I deserve and He has taken that and put it on the shoulders of His Son Jesus and Jesus bore that guilt and bore that sin that He had not committed. Yours put on His shoulders, carried it to the cross, surrendered to the cross, held out His hands to be pierced and allowed Himself to be nailed to the cross and there He took on Himself, all the guilt for all of our sins, for all of time, and for all of eternity. That is what He has done. God, God did not, God is not a God who just, just says, well, you know what, I know you've done wrong, but don't worry about it. No, He says, you have done wrong, and those wrongs must be punished. 
There has never been a sin. There never will be a sin in all the history of the world and the history of the human race. There will never be a sin that goes unpunished. Never one. Every sin will be punished. Either you and I will be punished for them or someone will be punished in our place. Nothing but the... I loved what Stevie said this morning. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We can sing it over and over again. Every other line in that song, nothing but the blood of Jesus. It doesn't get old. It doesn't get wearisome. It doesn't get empty and hollow. It affects us to the deepest place of our being because we realize that we are forgiven because He canceled the debt for us. That's forgiveness. And now Paul says to us, even as you have been forgiven by canceling the debt that others owe to you. And you have to understand, every time you give forgiveness, that's what you're doing. You're canceling a debt. You're, 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 say, you're recognizing this person has in fact sinned against me and if I were to demand justice right now, there would be some kind of consequences, some kind of payback, some kind of restitution. There'd be something. But forgiveness says, no, I'm canceling that debt. Even as God has canceled mine, I will cancel yours. And this is not to say that there are never any times when there need to be consequences for sin. There are in life, in society, even in the church, there must be consequences when there is sin that people refuse to repent of and turn from. But the reality is that God has simply canceled our debt through Jesus Christ and now He says, do the same to each other. We need forbearance and we need forgiveness in the church. And I want us to notice, I want us to notice that this is ours to do. Notice verse 13. As the Lord has forgiven us, we must forgive each other. A very literal translation of verse 13 would go like this, even as the Lord forgave you, so also you. You. You can't get away from the, the, the pointing finger of this text. So also you. But Tim, so also you. But if you knew these circumstances, so also you. But if you understood what they actually did to me, so also you. There is, there is, a, there is a demand placed upon every single child of God who has been forgiven by God to go and do likewise to one another. And notice, too, the decisiveness of this forgiveness. Verse 13, as the Lord has forgiven, we must forgive. 
literally, again, I don't mean to get too technical, but there's a, there's a type of past tense in the Greek language that is behind our translation here. Uh, it's called an aorist tense, and it, it speaks of a, an action, a past action that is definite and final. And what this, where it says the Lord has forgiven us, the, the actual translation is the Lord forgave us. And what it does is it points back to the moment of our conversion where God gave us a new heart and brought about repentance and faith in us. And we put our trust in Jesus. God forgave us. And there was a finality to it. There was an eternality to it. And there's a sense in which he goes on forgiving us from day to day and assuring us of his mercy and of his grace. But there's another sense in which it is one and done. It, it has been done. God forgave you. And that forgiveness is final and is forever. No matter what you have done since then, no matter what you ever will do, you stand, if you're a child of God, you stand in a place of firm, final, forever forgiveness. And nothing can change it. And Paul says that we are to be forgiving each other as God forgave us. There needs to be a firmness and a finalness to our forgiveness toward one another. Well, this is hard, isn't it? This is hard. Nothing easy about the Christian life. If you're looking for smooth and simple and easy, then uh, you're going to have to go somewhere else. <laughs> uh, following Christ is taking up your cross daily. And it's self-sacrifice and self-surrender. Um, even when people have, in fact, truly grieved and offended you. I wonder who is here today, and normally I say I wonder if there is anyone here today who doesn't know Jesus, but I'm just going to assume there are people here who don't know Jesus. Not in a personal faith kind of way. You know about Jesus, you know a little bit about the Christian faith, but if you would be honest, you would recognize that that you haven't ever really surrendered your life to Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Um, I want you to know that you need Jesus. You need Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You know, there, there, are some, there are a lot of people who say, well, you know, that's good for you, but I really don't need that. And that is the absolute uh, most inaccurate thing you could possibly say. You need Jesus. Why? Because like me and every other human being on the planet and throughout history, you are a sinner. You are guilty before God. You know it. You know you are. And there's a holy God who, who has to punish that guilt and that sin. You need somebody to take your place. You need a Savior. You need a Redeemer. We all do. And if you have never trusted in Christ, you know that you have sins that are unforgiven. Well, I want to invite you to the One who offered Himself on the cross and took that guilt upon Himself. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 
That's talking about saved from the punishment for your sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Don't, don't go home as unforgiven as you came. Go home a forgiven sinner. Go home having placed your trust in Jesus. And if you are a Christian, these are challenging things, aren't they? Um, it's not easy. And there's nothing pretend about this. This, this calls for humility and grace and patience. This, this requires that we know that we are, in fact, new creations in Christ, that we are, in fact, equally created in Christ, that we are chosen and that we are consecrated and that we are loved. We need to know our identity. For us to do this, we need to know who we are. But knowing who we are, God gives grace for us to extend grace to each other. I want to tell you a story as I close. Many of you have heard this story before, but it bears repeating. And as I came across it again this week, after many years since the last time I read it, it affects me all over again. Some of you will know the name, Corey Tenboom. Corey was a Dutch woman who, along with her family, harbored many Jewish people during the war who were being hunted and killed by the Nazis. At great risk, Corey's family rescued hundreds of men, women, and children, but eventually they were caught and sent to a horrific concentration camp where her father and her sister, at least, were killed. Later on, after the war, she traveled the world telling people the wonderful love of God. And if you've ever heard the statement, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still, uh, that was Corey Tenboom who said that. She tells of one incident after the war that is remarkable and fitting, and I'm going to just read her account of this now, and I hope it affects us. She writes, it was in a church in Munich, Germany, that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filling out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their wraps, in silence left the room. But that's when I saw him. 
working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, but the next moment, I saw a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back to me with a rush, that huge room in the concentration camp with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking unclothed past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you are. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland, and this man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take his hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again the hand came out. Will you forgive me? I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive yours. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, my forgive but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. Please supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my heart, arms sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. 
For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prison prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. What is remarkable in the telling of this story is that Corey goes on to say, you would think, you would think that um, having forgiven a concentration camp guard, that forgiveness would have been easy for me from that point on. But read the account, and she honestly and humbly says, no, it still became an everyday challenge. For grievances and offenses far smaller than that of the guard, people who just irked her and bothered her and offended her and betrayed her, She found it hard to forgive. It is hard, isn't it? It is hard. But for those who have been forgiven much, as we have in Jesus Christ, there is the call to forgive others and the promise that he who has called us to this will be faithful to produce it in us and enable us to do it toward each other. And so, knowing our identity in Christ, let us then love one another and forgive each other, even as God in Christ has forgiven us. Let's pray. Our Father, there is in this text a a call that is very simple. This is not not hard to understand the text. But it isn't easy to do it. I pray, O Lord, that you would pour your Spirit upon us so much that we will know our identity. We will know who we are and all the grace we have received so that our hearts will be postured to give grace to others. And Father, if there are those here today who, as this word has gone forth, they are wrestling in their own minds, in their own hearts, are wrestling with the fact that there are others who have offended them that they've refused to forgive. Oh, Lord, would you please gently but persistently touch those hearts. Bring about a conviction that leads to grace. Oh, Lord, please. Because it is then that In giving forgiveness, not only do we communicate freedom to others, but we experience freedom ourselves. This we ask, O Lord, in Jesus' wonderful and forgiving name. Amen. Amen. Friends, this is, uh, there is something in the challenge of a simple message that can be particularly convicting to us, I think. Uh, this is hard. 
But God's grace is enough. His grace is enough. As we close, I want to encourage you as families to think about and review and pray over these things. Find somebody to talk these things through with and pray with that God will give you grace. And as you think about prayer, keep in mind, please, that a week uh, from tomorrow, we will be uh, doing a a five-day, October 25th through 29th, season of prayer and fasting. And there'll be more information coming your way over the next few days uh, going into next week. But would you please just set aside on your calendar, just be mindful during those days. There may be uh, periods of time where you just want to fast so that you can pray and uh, commit your, your life and heart to the Lord. Um, and a reminder that there's... Uh, refreshments over here to be enjoyed and if you are somebody who is a guest for the first time thank you thank you for coming Uh, you just don't know how much of a privilege we feel when people come and visit with us so hope that you will say hi and give us a chance to meet you afterwards let me just close this in prayer if you would stand with me uh, for the benediction And now, Lord, may you give to each and every one of us the grace we need to live and love even as you have loved us. Lord, pour out sanctifying grace. Pour out the grace of love into our hearts and forgiving grace into our hearts so that we might live this day and this week in the triumph of grace. Would you please keep us safe? And may it be that the love of God our Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the comfort of the Holy Spirit would rest upon each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you for coming. God bless you.